to you, Lord. For although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and song and he has become my salvation. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. And in that day, you will say, give thanks to the Lord and call on his name. Make his deeds known among the people. Make them remember that his name is exalted. Praise the Lord in song for he has done excellent things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry aloud and shout for joy, O inhabitants of Zion. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah writes these words in Isaiah chapter 12. He's given these words by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And he says, you, God, were angry with me. I want us to think about this for just a second as, 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 as we're singing about in Christ alone. And, and as we're singing, how great is our God. Praise the name of the Lord our God. Oh, praise his name forever. For endless days, we will sing your praise. O oh Lord, O oh Lord, our God. This same God, it says, you were angry with me. I want you to think about that right where you're sitting because the spirit of God's impressed upon me before we really jump into where we're going today to, to, to share this with you. That the anger and wrath of God for sin is real. It's a true thing. We tend to think that, oh, well, God's just this loving grandpa and he wants us to climb up in his lap and rub our fingers through his beard and he's gonna give us gum and apples and all these great things that grandpas do. But it says here, you, God, were angry with me. What does the anger of God look like? Uh, I'm glad you asked. It doesn't look good. Maybe these words from a few verses later in Isaiah chapter 13 will help you see what the fierce anger and wrath of God for your sin and my sin truly looks like. He says this, therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger. And it will be that like a hunted gazelle or like sheep with none to gather them. They will each turn to his own people and each flee to his own land. And everyone who was found will be thrust through. And anyone who was captured will fall by the sword. Their little ones will also be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives will be ravished. Behold, I am going to stir up the Medes against them who will not value silver nor take pleasure in gold and their bows will mow down the young men. They will not even have compassion on the fruit of the womb, nor will their eye pity children. And we want to act like God doesn't care about sin. And we want to go on sinning, knowing the fury of God that will come. If you don't know Christ this morning, 
that fury of God is on you. You might not see it today, you might not see it tomorrow, but the day of God's wrath will come. That's why Peter tells us, don't think God forgot about his promise or that he's slow to fulfill them. He is being patient with you because he doesn't want you to come to this. He doesn't want you to perish. He wants you to know him. If you've not trusted Christ this morning, this is on you. If you have trusted Christ, knowing that there is this kind of fury of this kind of almighty, all-powerful God, it is time for you to wake up, arouse yourself to the fact that you need to walk with him, not with yourself. And when you do, look at what he says. When you see the fury of God, but then you see the sacrifice of Christ that took the blows of God, that took the fury, he was the one that was thrust through. He was the one that was pierced. He was the one that was bruised. He was the one that was crushed for you and for me. Then verse chapter 12 says, I will give thanks to you on that day, O Lord. For although you were angry with me, even though this wrath was supposed to come to me, your anger is turned away and you comforted me because of your son. Behold, God is my salvation. See, God takes your sin so serious that he would provide a salvation for you to overcome the wrath that is coming. And I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. My salvation. N nothing else we talk about this morning will make a difference if he's not your salvation. N nothing else that we can cover, nothing that we can talk about in Ephesians, nothing that we can talk about in Luke, nothing we can talk about in John 3, 16 will make a difference if God is not your salvation. It won't. So, so wherever you're sitting now, I hope that your heart is listening to the word of God in this because God is offering you an opportunity for him to be your salvation through the blood of Christ. Not because I said so, but because he said so. Because your sin matters that much to him. It matters that much to me. This isn't my wrath. The only people that feel my wrath for sin are my kids. And that's because I want to help them see how they can trust Christ, not to avoid my wrath, but to avoid God's, which is a whole lot worse than getting a spanking from dad. But he's our salvation. He is our salvation. Flip back to the chorus of that song the choir just sang. I want y'all to sing this with me. You ready? Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Oh, praise his name forevermore. For endless days he will sing your praise, O Lord, O Lord our God. Let's pray. God, 
May we get a glimpse now of those endless days that we sing your praise. You're the song of our salvation, God. May that transform our homes. May that transform our workplaces. May that transform our church, our community. Because you've transformed us. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Ephesians chapter six. Now for the actual sermon. Ephesians chapter six, we're gonna jump in uh, with a little bit more of what we call the ordering of society and how we engage the world with the gospel because of the way the gospel has engaged and gripped us. Each one of us that have come to faith in Christ. Last week we talked about the marriage relationship. So, so we started chapter five, imitate God, and we submitted ourselves to one another and we submitted ourselves to, to walking in praise together in a lifestyle of worship. And then we started looking at the most basic uh, nucleus of society, which is the home, starting with the husband-wife relationship. If you weren't here last Sunday, uh, I haven't checked, but this should be online either already or maybe this week. Um, or I tell you what, um, I'll just, you know, come to your house and preach it to you. And um, we can just go that way if you, if you need me to. I'll just show up and, and we'll, we'll go. We'll go one-on-one with it if we need to. But it places the brunt of responsibility on the man, on the husband, because you, under God's economy, under God's authority, because of the covering of God in your life, you are the one who has been given the responsibility for the spiritual well-being of your home. You are the thermostat. The thermostat is the one that makes sure that the temperature is regulated properly. Now, unfortunately, a lot of women grow spiritually in spite of their husbands. Praise God that you grow spiritually. Shame on men for not being the one who leads. That doesn't mean that women are less than. It doesn't mean that women don't have uh, the, the same standing before God because in Christ there is no male, there is no female. But in the ordering of society, God has placed that responsibility firmly on the shoulders of the man to imitate Christ. And then we go a little bit further because, well, most homes are not just husband, wife. Most homes have some, a lot of homes have regrets, kids. Most homes have impact on the culture around them through the workplace. And I am convinced that as the gospel transforms us, it will then transform our families and then we'll take that into the community around us. And so we will take the gospel to the community naturally as it has transformed us. And he says this in chapter six, starting in verse one. Children, hey, this is appropriate that our kids are in here and not in children's church this morning, right? All the parents said, hey, man, hope my kids are listening to the preacher this morning. Children, obey your parents. And all God's people said, amen, we're gonna move on to this. (laughs) Obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart with goodwill, render service as to the Lord, not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, 
This he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters do the same things to them. Give up the threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven. And that there is no partiality with him. We come into this passage of scripture and we start looking at the ordering of society. We start looking at the ordering of the household and we start looking at how the gospel takes it from where we are to where we are going. It takes us from right here within our hearts, right within the very being that God has saved into the community and into the culture where he has placed us so that we could have the greatest impact for his kingdom. Yes, that means that if you have a job where you work was specifically ordained by God, God, that you could be a missionary of the gospel of Jesus Christ, a part of the royal priesthood, part of the kingdom of witnesses, that you would be that royal priesthood, that holy man or woman in that place at that time to see that your friends, your co-workers, your neighbors understand the power of the gospel. It also means that in your home, you are striving, striving to lead your family in the gospel. Nothing else matters. Yeah, you need food. Yeah, you need water. Yeah, you need clothing and shelter and air. And yeah. But what good is it to have a full stomach but an empty soul? What good is it to have the latest clothing, the latest gadget, the nicest roof or whatever, but have no standing with God? And so he comes in and starts talking to us in our homes and starts talking to us in our workplaces and he starts talking with the children. All right, kids, y'all listen up. You have a clear instruction here, not from Pastor Evan, but from the Bible. And when I say children, I mean from our youngest children all the way up to our oldest children. Hey, raise your hand if you are a child. Yes, yeah, some, some of you forgot that you're still a child because everybody in here had a mama and a daddy everybody's got one. You didn't just appear one day. It didn't. Adam and Eve died a long time ago. They're the only ones that didn't have a mama and daddy, okay? It says right there, children, obey your parents. Be obedient. Demonstrate obedience. See, Paul uses a term here and he places it for obedience in this continuous cycle of action. So it's not just a, hey, obey your parents that one time and then you're good. It's a continual action. Keep in mind that Paul wasn't writing to 21st century America where you grow up and you go finish high school and maybe you go to college or maybe you go straight into the workforce and you move out of mom and dad's house and I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. I set my own own rules. No, he's writing in a society where the father still had, had, uh, was still expected to be obeyed by his adult children until they turned 60. What? Yeah. Now that obedience looks a little different, right? Maybe the proper way to understand this for our adult children here is to give honor in such a way that your life reflects the way you were raised. Train up a child in the way that he should go and when he's old, he should not depart from it. If you're still living at home, I heard Tony Evans say this one time, doesn't matter how old you are, if you live in your mama's house, you do what your mama say. Some of you adults that uh, have mom or dad living in your house are like, hey, this is my house, so you're going to do what I say. 
Children, obey your parents. It's a continuous action. One of the downfalls of society comes with the disobedience. Romans chapter one displays the unraveling of a societal structure. And we always want to run to the sexual immorality. and We always want to run to the thanklessness. But in Romans chapter one, verse 30, one of the things that Paul highlights there as the sign of a degrading society is those who have disobedient, those who are disobedient to their parents. Hmm. Sound like a society you're familiar with? Where mom and dad are more concerned with being friends than being parents? Where kids are not taught respect and honor and obedience? Does it sound like something that might run rampant in the church? And I know not everybody's not gonna parent the exact same way. Good grief, I wish, I really wish the Bible would have given like, uh, like Hezekiah chapter 32 verses nine through 78, step-by-step verses instruction on exactly what to do as a parent. So that we could all say, you're not following the parenting rules. I can call you out on your parenting because you're not, no, it doesn't give us step-by-step. Kids don't come with an instruction manual. I learned in college, one of my professors says, look, your mom and dad were just trying to figure it out day by day. And now as a parent, I'm realizing, yep, figuring out day by day. The way that works for Braden doesn't work for Addison, does it? Well, we don't know if it's gonna work for Caleb or not. (laughs) But the command is still there for the obedience. Why? Because he says there, it's in the Lord for it is right. What Paul is demonstrating for you is that this is just a universal truth. Whether you know Christ or not, whether you are a God-honoring society or not, all societies for all of time have this structure built into them that you obey your parents. Mom and dad set the rules. Mom and dad set the pace. But as a Christian home, it is not just obedience for the sake of obedience because mom and dad said so. It's because we are demonstrating how we follow and honor God. Mom and dad, if you teach your child today that they do not have to obey you, you are teaching them that tomorrow they do not have to obey God. Because your obedience and the ordering of the household is structured in order to demonstrate what the power of the gospel is. And so as long as we continue raising kids who never do any wrong, who never get in trouble, who never have any faults and get trophies for blowing their nose, we're gonna raise kids that don't think they have sin and don't think they have need and don't think they have an obligation to the God that made them. This is why the gospel is getting harder and harder and harder in America because we are a self-built godless society. I don't care what the world says. The world says that we're a Christian nation. Some of us have bought the lie that we're a Christian nation. Yeah, we've got some Judeo-Christian foundation and some of our earliest documents and founding fathers built some of the moral religious responsibility of our faith into what we do, but we're not a Christian nation. We are a nation in need of Christ. It also says for children to show honor. See, the second command that he gives there is not just children obey your parents, but he says there, he says, honor your father and mother. 
Parentheses, which is the first commandment with a promise. Because if you go back to Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, which is the fourth command, excuse me, the fifth commandment, the fifth commandment says this, honor your father and mother so that it will go well with you and you will live long in the land. Now, this is not a promise that if you just honor mom and dad, you're going to live to be 100. Now, I'd like to ask some of our people that are approaching 100, how well did you honor mom and dad? Did life go well with you? But this is just a simple, basic concept, right? If you honor your parents and you're living at home, life's a little bit easier, right? Men will understand, married men will understand this one, happy, life, happy wife, happy life, right? If mom ain't happy, ain't nobody happy? I mean, that, that's kind of the, the adages we use. But when we demonstrate honor and respect for those that have gone before us and those that are older than us and those that are, have given responsibility for us, everything else in the household kind of follows suit, right? He says, honor your father and your mother. See, obedience is the external action. Honoring is the internal respect of the position of authority. It is honoring that they are given by God the responsibility of leadership and that we don't just blindly go as lemmings, but we honor them as having the authority given by God. It's an internal aspect. You teach a child to honor their parents, they will honor others in society as well. Dad, if they don't see you honoring mom, they're not going to honor mom and they're not going to honor women as they grow older. Mom, if they don't see you respecting dad, they're not going to respect dad and they're going to question male authority and leadership the rest of their lives. Honor starts with the inward attitude of the heart. That's why it's not just a, well, once you're 18 and out on your own, you don't have to obey, you don't have to honor. It's a continuous cycle of action. Kids, you got it? Grown-up kids, you got it? We're going to obey and we're going to honor, right? Well, let's talk to parents just a little bit. Parents, uh, Paul picks on you a little bit as well because you have a greater responsibility because if your children are going to obey you, you've got to demonstrate that you are worth obeying, right? Right? Look at what he says here. Fathers. Again, men, he places the square on our shoulders. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Parents, that's your command. Don't provoke your kid to anger. Your translation may read, don't exasperate them. Don't bring out such a level of bitter frustration because of how you parent them, for how you ag them on and how you are demonstrating a lack of faith in God and a lack of consistency and a lack of competency. And I know we're trying to figure it out every single day. Each one of your kids responds differently to something. And if you don't have kids in the home, you remember what it was like when you had kids. You can look at your adult children, the different ways that they do things. If they have kids, each one of your adult children is going to parent their children a little bit differently. I had a professor in seminary tell me one time that he didn't know if he was, going to be a, if he was a good father and he would know when he saw his grandkids. Because based on the way his children raised their kids would demonstrate how he was as a father. This goes back to Psalm chapter 127 that says the man of the house is going to be like one that's an olive, an olive tree. You know what olive trees do? They produce olives for thousands of years. 
There are olive trees that are in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem right now that were putting olives off the, off the limbs when Jesus was still walking on the earth. Think about that. That goes to the posterity and it goes to the aspect that we have as fathers, that we have as parents to raise our children in the Lord, but not to provoke them to anger. So, so we're like, what, Evan, what does that even mean? How, how do I keep from provoking my kids to anger? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because I don't want you to provoke your kids to anger. One of the first things is to be reasonable. Be reasonable. Do you know how exasperating you can be to your child, especially if you have children in the home, if you place expectations and responsibilities on them that aren't age appropriate? I coached Braden's soccer team when we still lived in South Carolina a couple of seasons and, and last fall here. And, and, and I, told, I told the parents right before practice started, before we started having practices, introduced myself and everything. I said, look, look, kid. this was when America was trying to qualify for the World Cup. Didn't really go well. Um, they missed it. Um, missed it by that much. Um, and, and I tell them, look, I want your kids to, I've got, I got three things for you. I want your kids to learn the basics of soccer. Because I'm, talk, I'm talking to parents of five and six-year-olds. And, and I had one three-year-old that ran around holding his shorts up like this, and you know, he, he was kind of fun. I, like, I, I, I'm, I'm, I want your kids to learn the basics of soccer. I want them to have enough fun this year playing that they'll want to play again next year and grow in their skill. And three, I want them to be so tired that when they get home from practice, they go straight to bed. And then I would follow up with this. I am not going to coach this team as though they are playing for these kids as though they're playing for the American national team because they're five and six. Maybe one day they'll have that opportunity. But right now, I'm not gonna place the expectation on them that they perform at a high execution level of a professional when most of them don't even know the basics. If we continue to place expectations on our kids that they can't live up to rather than being reasonable and coming to their level and celebrating with them when they do have a victory, but then raising the bar to challenge them, then we are messing, missing the point as parents. And for all of our older parents that don't have kids at home, I, my, my generation, those of us that are in our late 20s and 30s and have kids at home, we need you to walk through this with us. Because you remember what it was like to figure it out day to day how to not let your kids die. And that's what we're trying to do. Help us be reasonable. The second one there is for us to pay attention. Pay attention. I saw a video. It went viral on social media a couple of years ago. And it was aimed at dads. There were a couple of hidden cameras around like a city park. I believe it was uh, just outside of Cleveland. And, and there were a couple of men that were going up to kids in a city park while their dads sat on a park bench with one of these out playing thumb wars, whatever they were doing. Grown-ups, you remember when the only thing you did with your thumbs like this was the thumb war? One, two, three, four, I declare a thumb war. Now you've got to use your thumb like that. All those years you were doing thumb wars, you were exercising for the day that you try to figure out a cell phone, right? Um, but these kids would be taken away from the playground by complete strangers 
for the purpose of demonstrating that we don't pay attention. We don't. It's getting harder and harder to pay attention. It's getting harder and harder to, for us to, to focus in and give value and meaning to our kids' lives by paying attention. And, and it's, no, it's nowhere more seen, as, it's not seen any more clearly anywhere than in the Bible in 2 Samuel chapter 14 and 15. Let me, let me give you the backstory. This is about David and Absalom. Now, David was king. You remember David? He's the one that gave us a lot of the Psalms and he was the man after God's own heart. He was the, the, the youngest brother, the youngest son of Jesse. And he's the great, 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 See, David had inter, in, in, involved himself with a, a few women that he didn't need to involve himself with. And, and, and one of them was Bathsheba. We know about David and Bathsheba and Uriah and all that that happened. Well, what ends up happening is uh, from one of David's wife, he had a son named Absalom and, and he had a daughter um, who was Absalom's full sister and their half brother raped her. And David did nothing about it. It happened in his house, in his palace, while he was king over Israel, and Absalom brought it to him, and, did, and David said, okay. And Absalom's rage, he was angered so much that in his rage, he went and killed his half-brother, and for the next two years, sought the life of his father, all because dad wasn't paying attention. Maybe David, maybe David doesn't bring it to you. Let me, let me drop some Tupac on you this morning, all right? Everybody knows Tupac, right? Some of you know Tupac. Tupac is considered by some one of the greatest rappers that have ever lived, but his life was cut short in September of 1996. He was shot and, he was shot and seven days later in the hospital, he passed away. And in Tupac Resurrection, which was a, a documentary of his life, there were some vocal recordings of words that he used and words that he said that he put out there and they would use them in Tupac Resurrection. This is what he said. Tupac narrates the experience of his early childhood. As he speaks, family pictures appear on screen with these words. This is Tupac. I blame my father because he left me. My real father was a black panther, but when I was growing up, I never knew who my real father was for sure. My, straight, my stepfather was a gangster, a straight up street hustler. My mom got a kid, but he didn't care. Oh, that's my son, he'd say. He took care of me, he gave me money, but he was a criminal too, out there doing his own thing. He came and brought money and then he'd leave. Hear this. I know for a fact, if I had a father, I'd have some discipline. I'd have more confidence. Your mother can't calm you down the way a man can. Your mother can't reassure you the way a man can. Your mother can't show you where your manhood was. You need a man to teach you how to be a man. This isn't some gospel preacher. This is Tupac. Man, we got to pay attention. We provoke our children to, to anger when we step in to be the enforcer, but we've not paid attention to everything going on in their lives. Maybe the third thing is to give meaning. Give meaning. 
parents, did you realize that one of your primary responsibilities as a follower of Christ in your home is to teach your kids what it means to be an image bearer of God? That your children would know that they were made for a redeemable purpose before God? That gives more meaning than everything. I just want you to just, just trace history with me just over the last 50 years or so. 150 years ago, there was this really cool new theory that was thrown out there called evolution. And this theory of evolution taught that uh, at some point, um, plant material became animal material and, and these little amoebas somehow became fish that somehow sprouted legs, that somehow crawled out of the water, that somehow developed scales, that somehow developed hair, that somehow became a monkey, that somehow became a man. Yet we still have all of those other things that should have gone away by now by evolutionary standards. Well, what ends up happening is sometime in the late 50s, early 60s, evolution begins, begins taking some, getting some traction in the education system. And sometime around the mid 80s, it went from being taught as a theory to being taught as scientific fact. Well, here's the thing that I learned in elementary school about facts. Facts can be proven or disproven. You can't prove evolution. So it's not a fact. It's a thought. It's a theory. But you know what's happened over the last 50 years in American society? We have higher rates of depression, of anxiety, higher rates of child and teenage suicide. And we want to say it's because of bullying, it's because of this. It's because we've divorced our children from the thought that they were made in the image of God with a divine purpose. Give your child meaning. Help them see that they were made by God to be redeemed by God because God is the one who authors life. Give them meaning. And the fourth one there is to be consistent. You know what the most exasperating thing for a child is? Inconsistent parenting. Inconsistent parenting. Follow through with what you say. Oh, that's a tough one, right? Actually following through. It, it's easy to make those threats. All right, I'm going to take the DS away if you do that again. But you know that when they do that again, you're going to let them keep the DS because if they don't have the DS, then they're going to annoy you and you don't want to be annoyed. That's inconsistent. If you've got more than one child and they see you heavier on one, and guess what? Kids pick this up. Kids, kids pick it up. One of the most heartbreaking conversations I've had with my kids happened about two, uh, three weeks ago. We're out in the backyard and, and, you know, we've got three kids and there's two parents and one of them at the time was not walking and Braden loves to play baseball and Addison likes to do all these things. And, and Addison made this statement because we were having to push Caleb in a swing. We're trying to play baseball with Braden and Addison's just kind of on her own. And she made this comment. She said, well, the problem is that there's nobody playing with me. That's inconsistent. See, seeing all the attention go to one, to the golden child, brings bitterness and exasperation. See, seeing the threats of punishment out there but never brought, it brings exasperation. Parenting out of annoyance rather than out of disobedience, disciplining out of annoyance rather than disobedience brings inconsistency because it might annoy you now but doesn't annoy you next week. Be consistent. 
Not just be consistent, don't provoke anger, but notice he says there, he says, do not provoke your children anger. Instead, bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Parents, raise your children in the Lord. Don't raise them in church, raise them in Christ. There's a huge difference. There is a major, major difference because how many kids, you know what the statistics are, I mean, statistics are what they're, they're worth what they are. 85% of kids that go off to college leave church and never come back. Most of them are probably because they were raised in church but not in Christ. Mom and dad weren't consistent. They weren't provoking. They, were, uh, they weren't avoiding this provo provocation to anger. All of these things that were not playing. And you're not going to be a perfect parent. So don't try to be a perfect parent. Just try to be a godly parent. That's all the Bible's asking you to do is to be a parent that follows Christ. Don't provoke your child in anger. Rather, raise them in the Lord. Well, what does that mean? Starts off there. He says, bring them up. Bring them up. This is the same word that he used in chapter 5, verse 29, and talking about the husband-wife relationship where he said to nourish them. Nourish them. Help them grow strong. Provide the nourishment for them to grow and to develop and to understand what godliness is. And then he gives a positive and a negative. The positive is, he says, discipline them. I know what you're thinking. Discipline's not positive. D discipline's a negative thing. Discipline's what happens when you disobey, you get the spanking. You don't get a spanking for obeying. Discipline's supposed to be the next. No, it's actually the positive. It says, discipline them where? In the Lord. In the instruction of the Lord. That discipline is the one that shows them the way that life is to be lived under the authority of God. The negative here is instruct them. Instruct them. See, I know what you're thinking. Discipline is supposed to be positive. Instruction is supposed to be negative. But in biblical usage, the instruction is given to help us see what was wrong, why it was wrong, and how to make it right. It is to instruct us on where the sin was, what Christ did about the sin, and how we live in Christ. It becomes a positive, but it's because a negative was in introduced. So parents, you are to nourish your child. You are to raise them in the Lord by showing them what it means to be a godly man or a godly woman. And when they step off course, instruct them on the way to get back. Consistently. But then he goes to the workplace. We've got the home. We've got the mother, father, we've got the husband, wife. And then he goes to the workplace and he says there in the workplace, workers, you are to obey your bosses. Now he uses the terminology of slaves and masters. And, 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 and slavery at every level was an inhumane, is an inhumane practice. And it is one that although the Bible speaks of it and uses terminology about it, it's never one where the Bible says, uh, you've got to be a slave and you've got to be a slave owner. It is wrong. But what God says is redeem your place. If this is where you are, if this is your position in life, Live it to the glory of God and allow God to be the one who intervenes, who sets you truly free. Now, in modern society, we look at this in the workplace as workers and bosses. He says, be obedient to those who are your masters. Be obedient to your bosses in the flesh. Because they physically are the ones that provide the instruction and the leadership and the, the, the job responsibilities. They are the ones that physically are there before you that you have to honor and to obey. But he says it and do it in three ways. He says first, to be sincere. 
Notice he says there, he says, according to your flesh, in fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart, as to Christ. I love that word sincere. Sincere carries the, the terminology of integrity with it. If it's something is sincere, it has full integrity, which means it is consistent and it is real. This is a pottery term. See, what happens in pottery in the ancient world is when they would fire the pottery, sometimes it would develop a little bit of a crack in it. And in order for it to still be sold, because you don't want a cracked vessel that would leak out the water, what they would do is they would rub a little wax in there. And, and by rubbing wax, it kind of covers over the crack. And so when you'd go to the market and you'd buy this vase you, or this pot, you would hold it up to the sun to see if any of that wax would melt out of it. And if the wax would melt out of it, you knew that it was a fraud, you knew that it was fake. And, and what Paul is saying here is don't let anything bleed out of your work, but in sincerity, be consistent and fully together in how you follow the leadership and the authority of your boss. But then he says also, be diligent. Look at verse six. He says, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the work of the will of God from the heart. Man, sometimes you go to work and you're like, I just don't want to be here today. Everybody has those days. Even pastors. Everybody has those days. I don't have them here, but... <laughs> so, I, I really don't. I really don't. I like working here. It's nice. Y'all people are good to us. But sometimes you don't want to be there. And when you don't want to be there, you're less inclined to... Give it all you got. And some days you just physically don't feel like it. It's not that you don't, it's not that you say, I don't want to be here. It's just like physically, I just don't feel up to it. But he says, do it as though you were working for Christ, as a slave of Christ. First Corinthians chapter four, uh, chapter four, verse one, uh, Paul's writing and he says this. He says, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. And a couple of chapters later in chapter six, verse 20, he says, do you not know that you are not your own? He says, you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. If you've been bought with a price, you're now, your job description doesn't just entail everything that the boss says, but what Christ has called you to do. Christians should be the greatest employees the workplace has ever known. See, there are labor laws that require that if you apply for a new job, that your new employer can't call your old employer and dig up all the dirt. There are, there are parameters that are set in place that certain questions can't be asked and, and can't be answered in those kind of interviews. It's got to be, hey, did this person work here for this time, this length of time? Yes, they did. Hey, did, would you hire this person again to come back and work for you? Yes, uh, thank you for your time. It should be that in, set, in, in such a conversation, the question should be, hey, would you hire this person again? And that person would say, I wish they never would have left. That man honored God. That woman honored the Lord in everything. And they were the best employee this company has ever had. That is the testimony of the gospel that is missing in our workplaces. He says, be diligent because you're working for Christ, not just for man. And then the third one there is to be pleasant. That's always fun, right? That's always easy on the days that you don't feel like it, right? Right? Who likes going to Chick-fil-A? Chick-fil-A has mastered 
this, we've got 9,000 people in our drive-through and we're happy about it mentality. They're not happy. It, it's, it's fun. And I try, I try hard when I go to the drive-through to get the person to not say my pleasure. Like it doesn't matter how many times you say thank you. It's always my pleasure, my pleasure, my pleasure, my pleasure, my pleasure. And, and I always want to ask, is it really your pleasure or are you just a robot that has to say that? See, you go to Chick-fil-A and you might pay a couple of dollars more for that chicken sandwich there than you do somewhere else, but you know you're gonna have the most kind and courteous people working with you, serving you, bringing your food, making your food, and how they keep it all straight, man, it's great. But then you go to like Long John Silver's and you're like, hey, how are you? Good, what do you want? I want to eat. That's why I came here. Okay, tell me your order. All right, I'd like to have this, 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 and this. All right, well, you've got kids with you. Can you come back to get your order? Chick-fil-A's like, hey, you go ahead and have a seat and we'll make sure we wipe it down with 19 different disinfecting wipes and we'll bring your food to you. Not only will we bring it to you, we'll open up your napkin, put it on your lap and cut your chicken for your kids. Because that is the pleasant attitude that goes forward. How often could we, uh, could we be a better witness of the gospel if that pleasantness was uh, just the aroma of our lives in the workplace? That doesn't mean you gotta be cheesy man everywhere. Like, hey, you guys, how you doing? Just be pleasant. It should never be said of a Christian in the workplace, like, I don't wanna work with that guy. He's grouchy, grumpy, and you can't get anything done. Paul says, he says, manage under God's authority. He says, masters do the same things to them, knowing that, and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven. There is an authority of God. If you have employees under you, you have been gifted by God with the ability to lead them. And you are a steward, not of just the workplace, but of their lives as you help them understand what the power of the gospel is in your life. He says it three ways. He says, first of all, reciprocate. Do the same thing to them. If we're gonna ask employees to be diligent, to be sincere, uh, to, be, to be pleasant, do the same thing as a boss. One of the greatest bosses I ever had, I worked in maintenance, housing maintenance in college at Mercer University. One of the greatest bosses I ever had was a man named Carlton Goddard. And Carlton, we would ride around in a little golf cart and go and change light bulbs or unclog toilets or whatever we had to do with housing maintenance. And he said, hey, and I asked him, I said, well, Carlton, you're supervisor. You've got like four other people that work on you plus three of us student workers. And he said, a good boss will never ask. He said, keep this in mind if you're going to pastor one day. A good boss will never ask an employee to do something they are unwilling to do. Reciprocate. Reciprocate. If you want your employee to be pleasant, be pleasant. If you want your employee to be diligent, be diligent. If you want your employees uh, to, to be sincere, be sincere. And don't discourage them. He says, give up threatening. Be an encourager in the workplace. He says, because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. That tells us to show equality. Just because there's a title on your desk, on your business card, on your name placard or whatever, you're not a better person. You're still made in the image of God. You are a blood and skin and bone 
equal, made in the same image of God as those that are working for you. He says, there's no partiality with him. So this is the attitude and event of the heart. In other words, mimic God. Verse five, chapter five, verse one, therefore be imitators of God. If you're a dad, if you're a mom, if you're a worker, if you're a boss, imitate God, the one who sets you free, the one who gave his life on the tree, the hill of Calvary, that we could go free. The one who was angry with us for our sin, but gave us the blood of Christ that we could be redeemed. In just a moment, we're going to take of the Lord's table. We're going to take of the Lord's table a reminder of the body that was broken and the blood that was shed for us. That we could go free, that we could know God, that we could engage with him. So I'm going to ask as we have a time to pray, I'm going to ask that you reflect on your position and your standing with God. Where are you? Is the wrath of God still on you? If you're a parent, do you need to repent of your parenting practices? If you're a child, have you broken the heart of God as you have disobeyed and lived without honoring your parents? Maybe you realize that even though you might be underpaid and overworked, you've not worked with the diligence as though you're working for Christ. Or leading your business, your company, your employees with the compassion of God. As we approach the Lord's table, I ask that you take some time as I pray to seek God's heart, to seek God's hand, to turn life, your life over to him. Let's pray.